Sound Design Live. Welcome to Sound Design Live. This is going to be a mega show. On July 14th, I published a book called Sound Design Live, Build Your Career as a Sound Engineer. You can buy it on my site or on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I'm really excited about this book because I was able to compile the very best parts of my first two years of interviews by subject. So you can hear different views on a bunch of different topics, including software mix systems for live events, creativity and pro audio, and higher education. In today's show, I'm going to play a short excerpt from some of my favorite interviews to give you a taste of the great stories and valuable information contained in the book. I'm also really excited that I got Bob McCarthy to write the foreword. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I thought I was going to have to twist his arm because Bob is super busy now. The new edition of his book about sound system optimization came out this year. Uh, he went back to work for Meyer Sound, plus traveling all around for all of his optimization clients and seminars. So the first time I contacted him, I said, hey, I know you're super busy. You don't have to read the book. I wrote a couple of paragraphs for you. Just give it your blessing. You don't have to do anything. To my surprise, not only did he write the foreword himself, but he read the entire book. I'm almost more excited that Bob McCarthy read my book than the fact that he wrote the foreword. Anyway, I'm psyched. I think you'll love the book. It's only eight bucks on my site. It has a great cover by my friends Mark Winslet and Mercedes Groff. Uh, oh, speaking of Mark, he has a crowdfunding effort going for surgery on his knee, which he heard playing soccer. This is going to be like $125,000 affair. He's gotten financial aid for a big chunk of it, but he still needs to raise a good portion. Mark was one of the first people I ever interviewed for Sound Design Live, and we used to have a comedy show called Big Time Dates. It's the only 30-second podcast ever invented, and I kind of think of it as the Wayne's world of our generation. Anyway, check it out. BigTimeDates.com! Are you ready to get your dates up? They say that, you know, to go and pick up women in bars, you should be a total asshole and make a girl feel really bad about herself. So you could try just putting that into your profile, like making every woman who comes to read your profile feel a little less good about herself. Can you give me some examples of some things I could put in my profile that would make you feel bad about yourself? What are the things that you could mention that would just make me feel really dumb? Like, oh, I thought I knew about that, but I actually don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. OkCupid really sets you up well for that because it gives you this whole category of message me if. Mm -hmm. which a lot of people have turned into some like serious assholery by instead of saying message me if they've turned into a whole list of like don't message me if so don't message me if you're going to waste any of my time playing cigarettes and anything other than vinyl is a really good way to be kind of an asshole that is such a solid tip right there write that <laughs> down mark it's like don't don't message me if you're only interested in having sex with Justin Bieber because I want to marry him? That, yeah, that's a little nice. That's a little nice still, Mark. And I hate everything? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say if you want to say something nice, just follow it up. Like, instead of putting a period at the end of the sentence, put a comma and then put bitch. Period. Well, I guess that's all the time we have. Thanks for tuning in. BigTimeDates.com I really like women. Please message me if 
you're someone who can be really supportive in a relationship, comma, you bitch, exclamation mark. Yeah, I think that's what she was saying. The exclamation mark is going to make it seem like you're joking, Nathan. You always want, you, you, Nathan, you always want to make it a joke. You have to be an actual asshole, Nathan. You can't be a jokey asshole. And you're welcome. So go to GoFundMe.com and search for Mark Winslet. That's W-I-N-S-L-E-T-T. Help my brother Mark fix his busted knee. Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Ellen Julin is a project manager and sound designer And the interview I did with her is the all-time most popular to date with over 3,000 total plays. It's called Cables Are Dead because we talk about a brave new networked audio world. Okay, so we already have Cobra Sound, Ethersound, and companies continue to come out with their own proprietary networks. So why do we need another communication standard and why have companies like Meyer Sound decided to throw their weight behind AVB? Yeah, good question. Um, and I think you may have already partially answered it by saying, pointing out the differences between proprietary things that companies have developed versus standards. Um, so sometimes people might say that Cobranet has become a sort of industry standard, but that doesn't mean that it's covered by any standards organization. Um, and to use it, you have to pay Cobra Sound, right? Correct. Uh, I mean, to use it in your own product. You have to pay, uh, I think Cirrus Logic okay. is the current company that you have to pay a licensing fee to. Yeah, so you have to pay a licensing fee if you want to um, integrate these into your products. Um, and uh, in most cases, they're also kind of a closed box. So if something goes wrong in there or something is happening that you don't, know why it's doing that, then you have to call up your, you know, your support person at that company and work through things. And, you know, you, you don't really have any control over what's going on there. Um, but uh, with the AVB standards, this is uh, um, being developed by IEEE. And uh, most of the standards are now ratified and finalized. And anybody is free to implement those standards in their products without having to pay anybody a license fee. And a lot of them have been implemented in um, certain networking chipsets already for, uh, over the past couple of years. There's a, a bunch of chips out there already that have the, uh, you know, the hardware-specific requirements uh, already added in. I see. So as companies develop their own networking protocols, they were doing that in an effort to uh, sell them. So it took a body like IEEE to develop a standard that then anyone could use. When an audio company is creating a networking uh, protocol, a networking distribution protocol, they have to, you know, currently or before IVB, have to work around the limitations of Ethernet. Like a network, typical network today, doesn't have any concept of time, of how long it takes so packets to get from one point to another point. You know, they have to have buffering and uh, set, you know, setting latency. These are all things that are pretty standard in Cobranet um, and other systems where, um, you know, you don't have a guarantee of your audio getting from point A to point B. And so part of the AVB standards includes uh, time stamping and master clock that is uh, part of the network switch 
and um, and the endpoints, so that they know what the timing is and they know how long it will take a packet to get from point A to point B, and they will guarantee that that will happen. So in this uh, AVB system, the network switch is intimately involved in what's going on with the audio traveling, uh, audio or video streams traveling across the network and um, guaranteeing bandwidth um, for those time-sensitive streams. Um, instead of being kind of agnostic to whatever data, you know, it doesn't necessarily know uh, if you have Cobernet traffic, it doesn't know what that is. It just sees some packets and things and it doesn't know that there's some audio in there and there's a print job and maybe it'll decide to, you know, find the, <laughs> get the traffic for the print job instead of the audio. So, you know, AVB um, standards prevent that from happening by having the dedicated bandwidth for audio streams and then a limited amount of bandwidth for other legacy traffic. All right, now can we make wild predictions? Sure. In 10 years, AVB will be so common that all interconnections from microphone to speaker will be made with Cat5 cable. So no more microphone cables. And wireless network connections will be so fast and robust that they will eventually replace all of those connections and we will finally achieve my dreams of a world without cables. <laughs> um, Say it's true. I can't think of a reason why that should not be true. <laughs> Relevant to your point earlier about you know microphones having uh, preamps and so forth in it, uh, AVB will also work with uh, PoE. Things. So you can have your microphone powered by the network switch that it's connected to. Mm. Um, uh, PoE, PoE Plus, you know, there's a whole host of Ethernet standards that come along with, um, you know, the AVB ecosystem, uh, like security and things. So, like, you, there, you don't need to kind of reinvent the wheel to create an AVB network. It, there's a lot of stuff that comes along with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and there's uh, some work underway for wireless. Um, that's not the priority at the moment. The priority is to get AVB and getting it working and getting the Avenue certification uh, up and going. Um, but there is certainly a big uh, amount of interest in that, um, especially on the consumer Steve Brown was the head of audio at the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester. Sadly, he succumbed to cancer shortly before my book was published. So I decided to dedicate So I decided to dedicate the book to him and I want to play one of my favorite parts of our interview. Can you remember how you got your first job in audio? I'm completely untrained. Um, I left school uh, when I was 15 and I played a bit of football and I started to play the drums and I became a drummer in a rock band and made a few records and toured and all those things and and sooner or later, I realized I wasn't ever going to uh, be the rock star I dreamed about and was looking around for other things to do. And a, and a friend of mine's mother was a drama teacher and suggested I might like to work in theater sound. So I checked it out and I got a job at my local theater and uh, operating. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And, uh, <laughs> but it was a great learning, a learning experience. But I, you know, I did a bit of stage lighting. I did crew and I did whatever they wanted really and uh, I was offered a tour of a musical by Sandy Wilson called The Boyfriend and it was you know a cheap tour shall we say um, but I just grabbed it with both hands and I went off on the road 
with this for six months and toured around the UK and learned lots about mixing a musical. Learn, uh, and it was a fantastic learning experience. And from that, I was offered some more work on musicals, but uh, I was offered a job with the Royal Shakespeare Company very early on. And I went off to work for the Royal Shakespeare Company for five years, six years, touring around the world with various shows of theirs. And I just think touring, for, for me, was just a great learning experience because, you know, you might, might be out on the road and, and be faced with a, a huge problem of some kind and you have to rely on your, your own skill and wit mm -hmm. to get you out of that problem. And I just think that's a fantastic way to learn. You know, I've made every mistake a sound engineer, a sound technician, a sound designer can ever make. And the th but, but I think the important thing is, is I, I only made them once. And the best thing to do is own up to it and put it right. Eddie Codell is a live video streaming expert. I know most of you are sound engineers like me, but as webcasting has become more and more common, knowing a little bit about online video has become important. I asked Eddie to walk me through the steps necessary to integrate webcasting into a live event. Um, well, the first question probably is, do they have a budget just for the live stream part of it? Um, if they're just like, oh, we'll pay you to come in and do the audio stuff, and can you also do the live stream on top of that? That's, that's kind of a hairy situation because you, you, budget's going to determine the quality of what you can do. Um, you, you know, there's, there's basically two levels, well, probably multiple levels, but I, I would consider two basic levels of quality that you can get for minimal to no cost or for a moderate amount of cost, let's say maybe $1,000 or so. Um, and the, um, the minimal to no cost is just taking a camera and aiming it at you know, wh whatever it is that you're, you're capturing and then outputting that um, camera feed into a laptop and then running and then just using a Ustream or a Livestream or Justin TV. Um, and there's free software or you can just use their websites and they have their own broadcast console mm -hmm. um, that so that the thing is the you know you're that can work in some instances but um, the problem there is you are any number of things could go wrong um, flash could crash the website in which you're transmitting from is, is gonna go down find out if they have a budget um, if they have like no budget and you're willing to put in the the, the, the work to do it um, the, the simple easy way is gonna be just a camera a laptop and um, definitely an internet internet connection um, the next question would be, what is the, what is the internet connectivity at the venue? Um, and you'll want to do a speed test to check. You want to make sure that your outbound bandwidth is at least one megabit. Um, you can do it less, but if you do that, you're, you're, you know, you're potentially setting yourself up for failure. Um, also, you want to make sure that it's a wired connection, not a wireless connection. Um, wireless can work, but it's, um, for streaming, it's pretty, pretty fickle because uh, not all, all wireless packets make it to the router. And if other people are on the wireless, then that's you're competing for... You're, Competing for the, the connection. How do you safeguard your connection to make sure it gets the priority? Well, I mean, a lot of that is up to the client, right? You, you have to tell the client ahead of time, "Hey, look, uh, I need, you know, I, I need, I need a decent internet connection with at least a megabit outbound, and it can't be shared." Right? That's usually what I tell people. So, depending on the venue, if it's the Mission Bay Conference Center in San Francisco, which has like a 60, 100 megabit outbound link, it's not an issue because they've got so much bandwidth that even if everybody's on a laptop in there, it's really not going to affect it. Um, but if you just if you go into you know maybe maybe a venue down in you know just a music venue downtown, they might only have a DSL line, right? And so they might only be 800k out or something like that. 
um, if it's just if if that line is dedicated to the live stream and nothing else, no one is you know they're not using it for processing credit card payments or the Wi-Fi is open to people uh, in the venue, then you could probably pull it off. But if you're sharing a DSL line with with multiple potential users, then that could set you up for failure. There's, so I was kind of getting into the kind of different levels. So the, the base level is just using a laptop and a camera. Um, the, you know, you can get a fairly decent quality production doing that as long as you're able to monitor sound and make sure that the, the lighting is decent and, and the, the picture quality is good. Um, then you can just run software like um, um, Flash Media Encoder Live, which is uh, Adobe's free um, Flash encoder software. And basically the way that works is you just... Um, you know, you set up an account at a, a live stream, you stream Justin TV or whatever, and then uh, you have an XML file and you load it into this into Flash Media Live Encoder, and then you set your you want to set your quality settings. So you get to decide what the bit rate's going to be. You know, 400k, 600k, one megabit, whatever. Then you're going to set your um, your picture quality, whether uh, the, you know what the, whether it's going to be in HD, which you're probably not going to do in most cases because you probably won't have the bandwidth for it, and most users probably aren't going to be able to see it still. Though we're getting we're getting there. Um, so basically, you want to set your frame size, your bit rate, um, and uh, and then you want to test it, make sure that it uh, is viewable on you know the CDN, the the Ustream live stream or Justin, um, and then. Um, that's sort of the simple, easy way to do it. The more the the next step up would be to use a dedicated hardware encoder, which is basically a box, a computer that's dedicated to bringing in video feeds and um, encoding them in, in in either one or multiple resolutions, um, all the way from HD down to whatever, uh, and then it can send out to one or more locations simultaneously. Um, so for larger events, I'll I'll use what's called a TriCaster, a New Tech TriCaster, um, which is essentially a computer in a box with a whole bunch of input and outputs on it, uh, audio and video. And so the, uh, the HD version of that, I can, I can plug in eight cameras or eight video sources in um, HD all the way down to composite video. Uh, and I think it has like four or eight XLR audio inputs as well. Um, and then you basically set up like three giant monitors and you've got your, you've got your basically a video switcher on one of them, you've got an audio, you can have your audio mix on another and then you can have a, a preview or a program out on the third. Um, and then they, they make a special little uh, video switcher console thing, which you don't need to have, but it's kind of nice and looks more pro when, you, when you've got one. You know, <laughs> makes the client look feel like you know it's only a few extra bucks if you're running one anyway. And uh, but the cool thing about that is it's essentially a broadcast switching environment, live switching environment in a box, right? And so you've got all these feeds coming in. You can do bottom thirds. You can do pre-roll video. You can do graphics. You can even do green screen sets. It's crazy complicated stuff. Um, well, it sounds like you're talking about a pretty big gap to GoPro. I mean, we yeah. we just went from free we, to like yeah. twenty thousand dollar hardware. I'm right? sure I'm kind of showing you kind of the, the 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 extremes, right? There's definitely stuff in the middle too. You don't have to go all the way to a TriCaster to to do a two camera shoot. Like you can do a two camera shoot with a laptop and FireWire. How do you do a two camera shoot with a laptop? I mean, well, it's harder now because um, the way I've done it in the past is is using uh, FireWire. Which is becoming less common now. There's an, a they're not making very many cameras to do FireWire, and FireWire is being phased out. You're not seeing that um, in um, laptops anymore. You know, the, the traditional way that I would do it is I would have two cameras. Um, you know, and I would 
have, if I can connect them, both if both cameras have FireWire out, I could have them go directly into a hub and then go into my Mac, and, and I can switch to fairly reliably in standard definition. Uh, HD is a little harder because it's a bit more constrained on the CPU. There's a lot more processing power for doing HD. And you're still using the Flash Live producer? For um, in that case, I'm not. I'm using Wirecast, which is software that has a Flash built into it. It has the, the Flash uh, Live meeting encoder built into it. But basically, Wirecast is a, almost like a software version of, of the TriCaster. It'll, it'll handle multiple camera inputs, um, and it'll let you do the bottom thirds or lower thirds and graphics and pre-roll. Um, videos and it can actually also write to disk, write a uh, record out to disk, okay. but it's it's constrained by your by the CPU power and and number of inputs you have on your computer, so you can do two do, do you can do do a two camera NTSC you know DV standard def shoot pretty easily in that environment, but once you step up to HD, it's a little harder. There, there's also these boxes I use called a, uh, a Cannabis ADVC analog to digital converter box, which basically would take an analog video signal out from a camera, like a co compositor S-video out signal from a camera, and it converts it to FireWire. So if you have, so that way you, you don't have to actually have a camera that has FireWire on it. You can, you can use pretty much any camera as long as it has a, an, an analog video out. Quality, of course, is not gonna be as good as if you're going over HDMI or SDI, but, um, that's sort of the way it was done. Larry Crane is the founder of Tape Op Magazine. I read Tape Op Magazine all through college, and it is Larry's style of personal, hands-on reporting that motivated me to start Sound Design Live. Oh, now's a good time for me to read a section of Bob McCarthy's foreword that is sort of related to this. Here we go. Uh, Nathan's choice of speakers and topics provides a mix of information and experiences that I have not seen collected in one place. The viewpoints are refreshingly honest and free of the laundry list of gear that characterize 90% of words written about this field. And, and the thing too that is really apparent is that with something like Mix Magazine or, or whoever, whomever, you know, EQ and Electronic Musician and almost everybody, is that they ignore they're much more um, likely to talk about the recording equipment mm -hmm. than the techniques and the choices that lead to using certain pieces of equipment and how you use the equipment and why. Um, there, there's more of a, you know, a list. I, I call them the list, you know, like, well, I put a D12 on the kick and I put a, you know, I mean, I'm not too interested in reading that stuff unless it's something really oddly unique or or a brilliant little idea, you know? Because mm -hmm. it, you know, if you tell someone, for me reading that when I was recording in my basement, I'd just go, yeah, right, I don't have any of that stuff, I can't afford it. How about telling me where to place the snare drum? Not <laughs> telling me what to use. Yeah, I had the same experience with um, uh, information and publications that you get in live sound. They, there's a lot of lists of equipment and stuff that people are using on tours. Yeah. And unless you're working on the next Madonna tour, you know, those those lists don't really help you, and I want yeah. to know specifically why did they make those choices. I want a lot more critical information. I mean, it's it's easy to read that, you know, the, the new big tour has a 500-input Midas automated console. I'm sure they do. That's great. You know, <laughs> the rest of us are doing what? <laughs> you know, we got a Mackie? <laughs> yeah. You know, and they've got a, we got a Mackie that someone poured beer on last week. I mean... <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm a little bit of a socialist at heart. So to me, like when you see the people only discussing the upper echelons of a, of a of the business that we're in, and then you realize that you 
there's something really missing. You know? Pierre Dupree is the audio supervisor at the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas. And I dedicate a whole chapter to him in the book called How to Mic an 800C Theater with Floor Mics. But right now, I'm going to play a section for you where he talks about the dying art of theatrical acting. Because yeah, I, I think two things are happening. A lot of people who get into acting are not necessarily doing it from a theater bent. They're looking at TV or movies or radio or film or something. Um, and what they lose is that technique and that skill of being able to whisper, speak very quietly, and yet throw the voice incredibly far. And some people are still good at it, but I wonder if it's a dying art. I think a lot of actors aren't being trained the way they used to uh, and, and learning how to, A, just speak at a loud volume, but also speak at a quiet volume or whisper and know how to manipulate their, their voice or, or, or what they do in order to reach a large amount of people to, to go to make their voice travel further. Um, especially as, as a lot of actors who are more in who are more movie or TV oriented where they don't need to do that. And it sounds very unnatural to do that for TV or movie or if they have radio work to make their voice go that far. And so they don't know how to do it. Um, so that's, that's, I think the first, that's the first step of, of, of kind of this. And then the other thing is the audience's ears are totally different than they were 50 years ago uh, as sound for, Movies, which is, you know, movies and TV, which is definitely, obviously, the, the dominant um, art form for the way people hear actors. They're used to hearing the sound of a voice three inches away from a fantastic microphone that's been mixed to all heck, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, and that's been compressed and edited and uh, checked for clarity and uh, re-records and re-edits have happened. So it's really pristine. So they're used to the sound of that. You know, the voice coming three inches away from microphone, as opposed to a voice coming 20, 40, 50 feet away from the, from the mouth with no reinforcement whatsoever. So what we'll normally start with are uh, microphones. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. Howie Gordon is a studio musician and college professor. I appreciated what he had to say about how using computers on stage can lighten the physical load but doesn't necessarily simplify setup or operation. The thing about having a laptop um, is that you have to go out of your way to program opportunities to be spontaneous with it. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, for me, there was a huge breaking in period where I had to realize that I can't just, uh, just with no rhyme and reason, go grab something. I had to set up a lot of different things ahead of time that I might want to grab later and make it, program it so that it was easy for me to grab them. 
So, I mean, you know, in that regard, hardware wins. Um, you know, my, my rig is kind of a hybrid of, of laptop and, and hardware. Um, and hopefully, you know, in terms of where this is going, hopefully laptops will, you know, one of two things will happen. Laptops will get multi-touch screens or the, uh, you know, iPads will just become more powerful so that they can actually run the big boy software. Last year, a play called Wild Bride came through Berkeley. Great story and really fun sound design. I talked to the sound operator, Andy Graham, after the show, and it turned out he's also the assistant sound designer. One of the most important things I do with Sound Design Live is talk about the career building side of being a sound engineer. So I want to play this section of the interview where we hear how Andy got started working in the West End of London. In terms of actually how did I get into the jobs, I was very fortunate. I met up with a friend one afternoon for a coffee, someone I had worked with back at home. He was an A2 operator on a show about 12 or 13 years ago. And he said, oh, you're still interested? That's fantastic. Why don't you come in this evening and just see, see how we do it from a different point of view? And then 24 hours later, someone was sick and they said, well, you were in yesterday. And that was a real baptism of fire, going from thinking you know everything as a 14, 15-year-old to realising you don't know much as a 17 or 18-year-old to being 18 or 19 and realising you know nothing and you Surprise. have to be taught it and here you go. <laughs> so you were making connections, but you weren't necessarily promoting yourself really hard, but you made connections in school and then you were just there at the right time. Yeah, and I think that's what we'd, in terms of competition for jobs, a lot of it is about being in the right place at the right time. Sure. We don't have a union, a strong union like you guys do here, so we don't really have to prove anything to anyone <laughs> apart from, do we, can we get on, can you do the job, are you competent, you know, and a lower down job, should I say, like an A3 or A4, um, running radios backstage, it's going to be much more important that you can get on with the cast, that you can do your job, that, that you're a people person and people want to have you around. When was your first opportunity to move was, to a mixing or A1 position? I was very lucky. We tend to share on some shows the responsibilities in the so West End. So we rotate okay. within, a within a show, within a department. So uh, a number three or an A3, as you call it here, on some shows will learn to operate and they might, if they're lucky, get to operate the show once or twice a week to keep keep their hands in and, and keep you know keep the skill levels up there so that eventually so you are an, an A3 or number three and it's a really good sort of feeder system to nurture things and eventually people may move to a different show and that's that's how it comes about so I was I uh, at college worked on a show called The King and I mm -hmm. um, at the London Palladium as a as a part-time or a, like an overhire as you would call it here just covering people's holidays and sicknesses. And then eventually another show came along with the same design team and they some of the operators left the King and I to go and do this new show to do My Fair Lady. And the job the number three job came up and they said, Well Andy's here, he knows the cast, he you know, doing as I said earlier, just doing those real basics, hopefully doing them well. Let's get him in doing doing the job full time. The job won't actually change. He'll just do it eight times a week and get paid a bit more instead of <laughs> two or three times a week and not paid that much. I felt it was good for me slow burn to get to where I am now rather than 
trying to have goals for myself and say in two years time I'm going to do this and next year I'm going to apply for that. So it's a, a really, a really sort of good way of slowly working my way up. Yeah, that's interesting because you probably, probably didn't come out of school saying I want to immediately get this and this position. You just wanted to be involved and work your way up. Absolutely. In fact, almost the opposite. I would start some jobs. Um, I did a show called Guys and Dolls about six or seven years ago now. Maybe it wasn't quite that long uh, as the number two operator, and I'd never worked with the number three operator before. And she said, oh, so I, do you want to be a number one? Do you want to be a designer? And I said, no, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> I love doing this. This is what I like doing. I believe there's a real skill to to each of the job roles. It's They're not just sort of things that you do while you wait to step up to the next one. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, 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 absolutely not. I'd, I'd be awful at it. I'd be terrible. And sure enough, nine months later, there I was as the, <laughs> as the number one on the show, having someone had left, I'd moved up. Same same deal, we've been doing it for long enough. We like to give you the opportunity. Someone came in, obviously underneath me, who was very experienced, and she was able to support me through every terrible decision I made, <laughs> every bad idea, every, all of that. So, so we're really good at... John Huntington is the professor of entertainment technology at CityTech in New York City and has a great book called Show Networks and Control Systems. One of my favorite stories he tells is about calling out a journalist for false reporting. Let's talk for a second about getting into fights online. Maybe a year ago, you published an AB blind test, I think it's called, a microphone cable. Could you tell that story? Because I thought that was really interesting. Oh, sure. Do you have another hour? <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened is I've been for a long time, I've been, uh, I think I'm just skeptical by nature. And I think people confuse skepticism with, with uh, cynicism, which it shouldn't be, um, but just sort of my nature. And um, uh, years ago, I kind of got started going to these uh, uh, co- uh, conferences. Like this guy, James Randi, has this thing called The Amazing Meeting. And I was at the very first one uh, in Orlando where there was 150 people. And I don't go anymore, but uh, now there's 1,500 or 2,000 people. The thing is huge. Um, and I loved it because there's a mixture. Randy's a retired magician, and uh, there's a mix, mixture of um, uh, show business and, uh, and science, which is basically what my whole you know, career has been about. So they did all this stuff and kind of got me interested in these things. And actually, even before that, uh, Dan Dugan, who's the, the guy behind the Dugan Mixer, uh, who's there in San Francisco, um, he, uh, years and years ago in an AES convention, he did this uh, hilarious cable test where he took all these audiophile claims and, um, and just tested them. They said, okay, well, if you put your speaker cable up on little ramps, then it'll sound better. So he goes, okay. So he bought the ramps and he did a blind test. And this is basically where... He had somebody in the other room, you know, run the cable on the ramps or not. And then he had the guy in the other room, like, jump up and down on the floor to vibrate it. And he couldn't hear a difference. So, and that's, uh, you know, you need some more testing to prove that. Well, you can't really prove anything, but to, to, you know, make that hypothesis stand statistically. But the process is really important to test things without, uh, you know, blind in a way that you can't tell what it is. So, uh I don't really want to name the guy, but I don't want to beat up on him any further. But uh, somebody online who wrote in a trade magazine of ours. So, oh, anyway, so it's. I don't think I don't know how many audio files you have listening to your show, but I've given up arguing. No, with most. Them. Of, I uh, think most of the people who listen to Sound Design Live are operators and technicians and front of house engineers, those kinds of things. Cool. 
And I hope they're not investing in 1,500-hour power cords. For no, their and, and I think most but. of them have some of their own, own equipment, but they're probably more like me where they work, they're contractors, and they work at a lot of different places. And they probably can recommend investment in um, certain pieces of equipment, but I doubt they buy into a lot of this marketing. So, so go ahead. Yeah. So I don't, I don't argue with those people anymore. The, not, not, sorry, not, not your listeners, but the uh, audio files, because it just isn't worth it. They, they're, it's based on belief and not science. So they wanna, if a lawyer wants to believe that his $3,000 speaker cables make it sound better, that's fine. You know, you're not ripping off innocent people. I mean, that's, some innocent people lose money. But um, anyway, so I hadn't seen much of that in, in our trade press. And then this guy wrote an article saying how changing the Starquad cable uh, made a dramatic improvement in the sound of his show. He was on tour with uh, Katie Wang, I think. Um, so and can by, I just interrupt? Because uh, probably everybody knows this, but it's more of a kind of cable that comes up in studio use, I think. Star, Star Quad is oh, a brand, right. and um, the important thing is that there's two, as a pair of wires, a pair of connectors for each pin. And there is uh, there is definitely a reason to use Starquad that uh, for balanced transmission. And I talk a little bit about that in my book because we have the same issue in data communication stuff. But for balanced transmission, that construction of uh, twisted pair and then Starquad. Twisted pair is actually patented by Alexander Graham Bell, which is kind of interesting. Um, but Starquad does have better uh, noise immunity. So if you're in a very noisy environment, it's a good thing to use. So, and microphone signals are very uh, small, little low voltage, tiny power things. So something like Starquad cable can definitely, could certainly improve your sound by rejecting noise. It is a better cable, but it is expensive, and I don't think you see it that often in live production. So yeah, it was a pretty big deal for him to, to come out and say, this is really important. Right, and what the thing that I objected to, if he had said, um, hey, this, I, I was in a noisy environment and this uh, reduced it, then I mean, oh, great, that makes sense. I wouldn't even thought twice about it. But the problem was that he went into this whole thing about suddenly slipping in all these audiophile terms, which are, audiophiles use them because they can't, there is no way to test it. How do you test for soundstage? Or, you know, we, I don't think if you get 10 sound people in the same room, they're not going to be able to define what warmth means. You know, so how do you test for that? So he went through all this stuff. And then, but the biggest problem I had, which is fine, I, he, anybody's welcome to claim anything they want, but his test methodology was really flawed because he changed all the cables himself and then went out to the console and said, this sounds great. So I just, what I wrote is I, I responded, this came up on, uh, online, and I responded to him saying, well, what was your test methodology? Could you, did you... I mean, and I can think very quickly of an easy way to test that because I think one of the things I learned through all the skeptical stuff is that we're pretty good at diluting ourselves. You know, if you just invested all this money in uh, Starquad mic cable, then you don't want to go tell the production manager you just wasted, you know, $500 on, on cable. So you want to believe, whether it's true or not, you want to believe that it improved the sound. But I think you have to uh, be completely as honest as you can. So a very easy way to test that would be just to have somebody else set the stage that night, you know, swap places. He was the monitor guy, I think. Or I think he was front of house. But anyway, swap places with the monitor guy that night uh, and just have them plug up the stage and then go out to the console. And if it's as dramatic as he had written, then it should be obvious, absolutely obvious. Uh, um, you know, the, the, the change was so dramatic as he wrote uh, that it should be completely obvious which was right. which, and then you could very easily do a test. You don't need, you know, 
psychology lab and PhDs to do that. You just need a, a workable process. And it's the same thing evaluating speakers, right? If you stick speakers behind a scrim and have somebody else change them, then you're going to really know which speaker you like better uh, based on reality and not based on brand or, you know, the grill color or whatever. You know, it's not, you don't have to do a lot of crazy stuff to do that. Um, so I kind of got into it a little bit on there and then I actually emailed Bob McCarthy about it. Bob got in and was kind of like savaging this guy and, and he, he, you know, we weren't really trying to... It was exciting. Yeah, we didn't, <laughs> weren't really trying to be... I, I really, I learned long ago that just, it just isn't worth it. No, it was great because Bob internet, is totally cool and very appropriate, like not aggressive at all. Right. But people get, you know, I've been attacked like that and I, you know, people get very defensive and I don't like to make people defensive about that stuff. But I was just basically saying, you know, if this is true, I'm not, I never once told the guy that he was lying or that he was wrong. I just said, you know, in a trade magazine in our industry, you need to hold the proof to a little bit higher standard. You just need to have a better test method. So then I, uh, I don't remember the sequence, but I ended up, was going to do a USITT presentation on blind testing, exactly that. And um, so I figured, well, it would be kind of an interesting project to kind of do this. So what I did is I was talking about uh, my colleague David Smith before. He has a Yamaha uh, Discovere at his house. So we went out there with just a little um, a Zoom recorder. Uh, I think we even used those preamps. Um, I think, no, I'm sorry. We, we used a... Um, uh, USB pre, which has a little better, higher quality preamps. So we went out to his house, set up uh, one microphone. Um, I can, no, two, I'm sorry. But we recorded the same thing. Same exact microphones. And we with the Discovere, the performance is you know repeatable to some pretty high standard. I mean, obviously, it's not exactly the same as a mechanical system, but it's 99.999% the same. So we played the Discovere and then recorded it... Um, the uh, with star quad cable and uh, without so and with regular old cable that we pull from our stock so the star quad was brand new whirlwind cable that i bought so we recorded that recorded the same piece twice with that or the same short snippet like four or five of them and then uh i'm not gonna remember the whole process without going to look it up but um basically i i all the only thing i did was uh uh i normalized the two files so that they were uh, I normalize them together, so they, 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 whatever gain in, increase was exactly the same on both, so there was no change at all uh, with that. And then I cut, I flipped a coin and then cut the um, clips together between uh, the start quad and the um, regular one, and then I stuck that whole thing online, and I had people, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'm jumping out of order here. So the, the test methodology is what's called an ABX test, and I learned about that 100 years ago at AES where I won a T-shirt because I could hear the difference between one TDK cassette brand and another. Um, but basically, um, you uh, have an, a known A and then a known B, and then you have an X. So we played the, um, I don't remember the order, but we played the star quad recording, the non-star recording, and then I flipped a coin to come up with what X was. And the way uh, I put it together... I did it so as little as possible I could possibly influence anybody. For example, we recorded the voiceover of the clip numbers before we had done uh, anything else. So when I was cutting that together, there's no tone in my voice or anything like that that could influence it because I had no idea at that time. And I put it online and uh, we ran a survey monkey survey, which is great because you can put up to 10 questions on there for free. And I don't remember how many responses we had, but 100 and something... Um, 
and then I presented the results at USATT. And basically, if there's a really significant difference, and I can't explain the math off the top of my head, I'd have to go dig it out. Um, you should be able, if you do 10 trials, and it's a real obvious difference, which is what he was claiming in his article. Uh, I wasn't really claiming his, but if there was a really noticeable difference between the two, um, uh, then you should be able to hear it eight times out of ten. Because, I mean, you might miss a couple because the cat made some noise or whatever. Um, but eight times out of ten. And certainly some people should be able to get ten out of ten. And then, you know, everybody else should come in five, six, seven, eight, something like that. So uh, when we ran the statistics, there was only, I think there was a hundred and some people. You can read all this on my blog, but there was like a hundred and some people that listened to it. And I think there was two that got eight out of ten. One of those, turns out, was one of my students who has really severe hearing damage. <laughs> oh, God. So it's, it's pretty unlikely that she was actually hearing it. She most likely just got lucky. And then so, there's uh, people like it, I've, Bob McCarthy republished this, your post, on his blog. And, you know, he's a professional and works in the audio industry. And he admitted that he couldn't hear a difference in any of them. So everyone has pretty right. severe I, results. Yeah, and what was interesting to me is I... When I was listening to it, so I, you know, when I got the whole thing, I listened to the whole thing myself and just basically took the test like a uh, attendee. And I'm horrible at remembering numbers, so there's no way I would remember the sequence of which one was which. I was convinced I knew that I heard something in the Stark yeah, Quad, and I was totally wrong, absolutely yeah. wrong. So I think it's an interesting way of how you can delude yourself. And um, so I think, but these, I think what's most important is not whether Stark Quad sounds better or not, which I, I would say. Under my test conditions, there's no difference. If we did one under a very high EMI environment with lots of interference, electrical magnetic interference, there probably would be a significant difference. That's a real mechanism that we know how it works and so on. I mean, cable engineers can tell you about that. But what's really important, though, I think, is that process. So I had a student once tell me that he had turned a subwoofer around and that it sounded better. So I'm like, okay, well, let's just test it to make sure uh, you leave the room. We're going to turn the lights out. Or I'm going to move the sub in a different way. I'm going to leave the room so I won't influence you. And I'm going to turn the lights out, and you tell me whether this is the new version or the old. It takes five minutes, you know. And it turned out there actually was a difference, and the reason was that the uh, drivers, then we had it in the corner, and my hypothesis to why this happened was the drivers were closer into the corner. Um, and I think, I think we heard a difference. I don't remember anymore, but this is years ago. But I'm, my point is you can uh, apply that process to all kinds of things and then not be deluding yourself. And I think we, you know, we can only push the, the state of our art forward if we're, if we're doing it based on actual information. And I think, just one last thing on that, that, I think a lot of people say, oh, well, you skeptics, you know, you don't want to believe in anything. It's just, no, we just want, you know, it's the old Carl Sagan quote that, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If there was really a, a dramatic difference um, in the uh, cable construction, then we want to know that, you know, and we, because then we, everybody would want to use it. And then the funny thing was at the, um, at the session at USITT where we announced the results, I never put this online, so you're, anybody who wasn't there is getting a bonus. Somebody else who was on that tour said that this never happened at all. Bob Lentini invented Software Audio Console, which is this great piece of software you can use for mixing live shows. At first, the book may seem like I'm trying to sell his software, but I use so much of his interview because it's super interesting. 
He debuted this thing back in 1992 at AES, and now, 20 years later, people are finally excited about mixing without a control surface. So many people are recording and mixing yeah. with a mouse in their home studio already, and so that's what I usually tell people. I say, you know, if you're already mixing and recording with a mouse and a keyboard at home, then this could be something that you're into. Well, it's live, you know, you got to grab this and do this and this all live. You know what I tell people? I mean, I've been in the business for 45 years now, you know, both live and studio split over those 45 years. And the reality is, if I'm standing and watching some audio engineer behind a console and he's jumping around like an octopus and his hands are all over the place like an octopus, you know what? His mix is messed up. His mix is... <laughs> Something's wrong with the gain structure, the trim. Something's wrong with his basic EQ, you know, blah, blah, blah. Something's wrong. You should not be back there looking like an octopus, pulling your hair out, running all over the place. And the best sound I've ever heard in any concert or any event or anything like that, when I look back and that engineer is sitting back and just grooving with the music, and once in a while he reaches over and pushes this button and grabs this fader and pushes this button and does this and does that, and he's certainly not all frantic back there like an octopus. And in the reality, that's exactly what I observed long before, back to 20 years ago when I started this concept. When I started working on this concept, first thing I asked myself, was it going to be possible? Could you really mix live shows with a mouse, you know, or with some small little thing compared to a big concert? And when I observed myself doing the best mixes I've ever done, when I observed the people that I worked with and learned from and trained with, and I listened and observed the best shows, the best shows were when we were relaxed, sitting back, and we were not frantic and going nuts. We realized we were only grabbing really one thing at a time most of the time. Dimitri Sotiropoulos is one of my good friends, and I'm going to play two short clips, one about going to school, the other about why being a sound engineer is amazing. Yeah. Well, New York was hard anyway. I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to make a living. You know, it was expensive and rent was expensive. But then when I came up to the city college, it, the commute was crazy, so I had to get a car, and that was an extra expense, so I had to get, you know, pick up a few more shifts at, at you know, whichever restaurant I worked at at the time. I worked at several. So, yeah, I ended up, you know, working at, you know, serving fish and then doing early morning Greek radio at some point, and plus school, plus all that stuff. It was but, kind of kind of crazy. Has, but has your life always kind of been like that? Have you always just had a lot going on? And I, I don't know. Not, not really. Not before New York. Oh, you know, okay. I was, I was like, I was a bum. I think in, it's that in, New York lifestyle. I wish my dad was was uh, was rich. <laughs> <laughs> Sound design. Exactly. Do you have any techniques for controlling feedback on stage, or it's mainly just EQ? But these, with these, you know, consoles nowadays and these setups that we're working on, there's EQs everywhere. If there's still feedback, it's too loud. So lower it, you know, or let it ring all night. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I feel like you've had this conversation with artists many times but already. Millions. Oh my. Millions. It's like talking to the computer. They're like, bring it up, and you're like, okay, and then you just let it feed back. <laughs> exactly. It's happened many times. 
I just like the job. It's it's amazing. It's challenging, and there's always, always, always something new to learn. You never know it all. You always, you know, get to know great people, and you know the biggest jerks. So they're all in our industry, and it's it's really fun. It 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 makes you it makes me think. You know more. It makes me makes me uh, have more patience with people, and sometimes not. I think it's you know the struggle with 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 gigging and meeting new people and doing records and getting so you know quote uh, unquote intimate with people and their musical you know dreams mm-hmm. uh, gives us uh, an opportunity to to, to uh, give me an opportunity to be a better person for myself and for the people who who um, who I work with. Sound design. Fly. <laughs> One of the hardest parts about being a sound engineer is dealing with technical limitations. I met Roy Taylor working at the Vortex Theater in Austin, Texas, and he really changed my attitude. And that sounds like it's been kind of a reoccurring theme in your work, and we were talking about that a little bit earlier, flying by the seat of your pants. I've kept that sort of, whatever, the wide-eyed innocence of how am I going to do this? And I'll, you know, I'll look on the internet, I'll you know, look up how do people do it? And you'll look at some message boards and get some ideas. But at the end of the day, it's like two things. One, one is, a, I always remember a quote by um, Orson Welles that said, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. So especially in this little theater group, it's like you have what you're going to have. You know, it might be a six-channel mixer and it, you know, it might be you know, this microphone and this microphone and this amount of wires and, and a budget of $75, and here you go. So you, you, you figure out how to do it, and it's not always like how is the best way to do it, it's how can I do it. Um, that's what I, 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 I think I've learned a lot of things through that that maybe I wouldn't have learned if I had gone, oh, you do that and it's going to cost 600 bucks or it's going to cost this to rent this. And, you know, it's like, well, how can I do it with what I have? Um, you know, and, and, and I've just accumulated the arsenal of little toys and things that I tend to like, but they're not necessarily the traditional things used in theater, um, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm using a lot of shotgun mics now, which everybody goes, well, isn't there comb filtering and phasing and stuff? And I was like, I don't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> comb what? It seems like it's working. I don't know. I put it through different sound sources, and sometimes you can get away with it. All right, thanks for listening. These were all samples from my new book, Sound Design Live, Build Your Career as a Sound Engineer. If you go to sounddesignlive.com right now, you can purchase the book with a 20% discount using the coupon CONCERT20. That's CONCERT and the number 20. No spaces. This is music from Mark Winslet. Remember to go to gofundme.com and give him money to fix his broken knee. See you on the next Sound Design Live. Watching the hand.
Oh, 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 oh,